Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations, where we should have had the full team today. Uh, but just in our, we, we've mm. been on for an hour before Creation Conversations. We come on an hour before every time we go live to talk through the program and to pray together. And John was with us, uh, and then the lights went black, and John froze, and then he disappeared. So uh, we got a, a frantic call from him saying that he's had a bit of a blackout and so uh, power cut. So uh, he may or may not be joining us, depending on whether the uh, the Brisbane Energy Service or whatever. Yeah, there is have been major there. storms. Yeah. yeah, storms and rains and all sorts. So uh, do pray that he will be able to join us uh, a little bit later in the program because he was supposed to be taking a good chunk of the program. But thankfully, mm -hmm. that's a little later on. And we've got plenty of other content to deal with today as we have a look through the world of mutations and whether we evolve, whether we mutate, whether mutations lead to evolution and so on and so forth. But uh, before we do any of that, we're going to kick straight off with you, Glenn, because yes. uh, we haven't we, we obviously had a... Um, bit of a break from creation conversations last week and the week before we were in the swamp you and i we were in the swamps last that uh time we saw you guys and we still have all of our fingers um but we <laughs> left from there on quite a a trip and uh joe you can call up the first thing that we that you've got there well you're going to show show this i okay. will show this first what we did was we went to the tucson fossil and gym show and uh, I was really interested in buying a lot of uh, living fossils and um, adding to our collection here on living fossils. And so, you know, I've got some different things that we have bought. Um, but the show is just really amazing. This was my first time to it. It's a fossil and gym show. You want no, to start? I'll bring Shan? up the slides. It's fine. Yeah, you put them up, Sam, and we're good. You can just you'd just be overwhelmed with all the gyms that are there, and these are in tents. Some of the tents are uh, city block long, and uh, then there'll be more tents outside of those tents. And then you go to the hotels, and they literally use the hotels to set up with their gyms, but also with their fossils. And uh, some of these gyms, my wife wanted to, you know, buy just a table, but the table costs more than our house, uh, literally. Is that a fossil with a purple coat on, or which, what, which this one down the bottom here? Is that a fossil with? The, no, that is. Um, well, I guess maybe <laughs> she's getting there, but you know, I'm not public if I say too much. That is a, a dinosaur bone over her head, and on the next to her is a geode that is $120,000. And there's another one on the other side of that hall, <clears throat> hallway that's just like it, a matching you know, set. Um, you can imagine the, the cost. And then there were fossils, fossils everywhere. We spent the first day just hitting it as hard as we could seeing as many exhibits as we could see uh, by the next day i was exhausted wore out knees hurting but we hit it again and by the third day i was so confused i couldn't tell you where we had been where we hadn't been um 
But we saw What's like, that one with a big God. branch in it, Glenn? What's that? What's the one with the big branch in it and the fish? So this is, you know, you have the big palm trees and then you have the seed of the palm which comes out and there's a long frond which comes out from the seed of the palm. And this is one of those uh, sort of flower heads, if you and like. this one's flowers. from Germany. I no, this, this is one of the not... Green River Formation ones. Oh, it is this a is Green River one. one. You can see the fish down there as well. So it's okay. a, a big palm tree buried next to a, uh, a fish. Which Beautiful. was really, you know, great to go to that exhibit because uh, we met the owners of this quarry who I'd been to their quarry before and uh, we had plans on going in august so we're, we it was good connections to make hmm. uh, but just overwhelming we we had the best time collected a lot of fossils but the um unique thing about this time was that we got a phone call while we were there didn't we got a phone call from david reeves oh that's right yeah sorry i lost <laughs> i'm so tired <laughs> we got a phone call from david reeves who had been there right before we got there and he had bought a lot of fossils and gems and left them in hopes that we could rent a trailer and haul his and ours back with us. And that's what we ended we up doing. Uh, we had just barely enough room in our vehicle to haul our fossils. But then when we added his to it, we just, there's no way. So we rented a, a trailer. And on the way back, we stopped in Dallas. Dallas is where ICR is headquartered, Institute of Creation Research. And, um, Joe, you have a connection there with somebody. I do. Dr. Brian Thomas, who's there, did uh, his PhD. Very similar to what I'm currently doing. I'm sort of carrying on the research to the next level under the same supervisor. So uh, it was great to connect and talk through some of the research and some of the projects. He took us behind the scenes into he the bloody underbelly of ICR, as he called it. They were his words, not mine. And uh, he showed us around some of the labs and some of the uh, research area. And the That's right. And we got to see yeah, their museum and their planetarium. Yeah. And you established some research collaborations mm -hmm. with Brian. Took some of his samples away with us. I didn't so know if you were going to say that or not, well, but I'm well, glad you did. did yeah. <laughs> and so that was a great visit. And this stop came about because of a couple that uh, my wife and I met on a fossil dig in Kansas. If you remember in the past, I talked about going on a fossil dig in Kansas and the couple that we met live in Dallas. And we said, well, they, they asked us to stop and see them, but they also arranged for Joe to speak in one big mega church, First Baptist Church of Dallas. Now this was not in front of the whole congregation. This was in front of the adult Bible study because this church has about 20,000 members of uh, this class alone uh, has about 100 in uh, attendance, another 100 watch online, uh, because that's about all they can have in the room is about 100. It was, it was a full room, yeah. Yes. It, was a, it was a full room in uh, for a, a Sunday school class, one of many classes that take place in the church, in a, in a, in a room that would have been larger than most churches in the UK, <laughs> two to three times larger right. than most churches in the UK. And we had a guest join us a guest who may be online with us right now. Um, so that was really special, getting to meet one of our chatsters and, uh, and, and came and visited this class just to, just to see Joe. Mm -hmm. um, then we got back from that trip on a Tuesday, exhausted. That was uh, around 4,000 miles we traveled, and we were really getting tired of the car. And uh, Joe had a speaking engagement at a church in the neighboring city of Crossville. 
Spoke to two different Awana classes. Uh, this is Awana Clubbers. This is kids so anywhere youth, from youth kindergarten up yeah. to third grade. Yes. And so he had a speaking engagement then. And there's no rest for the weary because we had to get up early the next morning to leave out to go to David Reeves' place so that, Joe, you could be on air. And um, you can see me being pampered there. Yeah, Joe's been recorded on television for David Reeves many times. So he knew this was coming up, but he didn't tell me because I was going to do my first recording. And um, I had to also do this, sit in a chair and let him powder our face, get us ready for TV. You didn't tell me that no, was going to happen. They offered you lipstick, but you refused. I refused. Do you want to show yeah. them the video of um, the recordings? Uh, yes, I can pull that up now. One second. In fact, Sam, would you like to play that for you? It's just in the videos. Yep, sure. Yeah, I'm going there. Behind the scenes. Here it is. I've got it here. Is the climate change? Are we in the middle of global warming or global cooling? What are the implications? How does it fit within a biblical frame? We'll find the answers to these questions and many more today on Wonders Without Hope. So uh, that's just the behind the scenes of David Reeves' studio where he records various shows. That one was The Wonders Without Numbers. And uh, there was the other one that was a more of a podcast, more of a relaxing. So we had two recordings of the podcasts, and that is Changing the Narrative and one recording of Joe. But the big event um, was that night. But before the big event, we got to go to his planetarium, which was really amazing um but not only because of the planetarium but i don't know if you can see at the bottom of this picture oops bottom of this picture there are two little um i don't know podiums standing up well those are tesla devices that fire off electricity across the room and they don't allow people to sit on the first three rows because it's too charged uh, it would get a little million dangerous. volts of electricity Shooting. shoots out. Yeah, it's a sight to behold, I have to say. And yeah. they capture the electricity. They then play a song with the electricity that's going between those two. It's really amazing. And then that night, Joe was a keynote speaker at the Wonder Center, and uh, he spoke on a subject that you know we wouldn't think in America would be very popular, and that is history. Uh, David Reed said there were supposed to be 300 people signed up and expect about 50% attendance. Well, there were, he said, uh, I took this picture long before we started and ended up being over 250 people there to hear Joe. That bottom section was full by the end. It was full. And then after his talk, which was recorded, it was shown live, but it was also recorded and will be showing on the Genesis Science Network. Then there was a Q&A. And uh, by the time we got back to the hotel room, Joe was just exhausted. I know I was, and I didn't have to speak like he did. But there's no rest for the weary, because on the drive back, we had to stop at a radio station just outside of Nashville in Smyrna. And we were live on the air this morning. That was good. So we've had a busy time. Busy, busy time. But there's, like I say, if you are listening and you are still in the United States, um, we have still got one uh, we've got one or two uh, gaps in the itinerary on Wednesdays, but we do have one Sunday, which is still uh, available, which is uh, next 
the 25th, uh, which is a Sunday or so away. So if you're interested, then do uh, get in touch if you want us mm -hmm. to come and visit. But that's uh, we're still not going to be slowing down anytime soon. So, yeah, no. keep praying for us. and, uh, and keep you, You're going to be speaking in another town on Sunday mm -hmm. and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on the radio. Uh, so it's a full light anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a little uh, ministry report for you then. Um, but we're going to go over to uh, to Craig now uh, for the Is third. Of... Second, sorry. Is the East first time. Oh. I'm sorry, I've lost you. Where was that? Sorry. I just thought Diane was first, but I'm I'm okay to go first. I thought it was. Uh, yeah, I think if we do yours first, because then it, okay. we, we have Diane next to see whether that leads into John's if he does come back or not. But no um, yeah, that's no, fine. Um, so basically, our subject today, our main subject today is uh, mutations, this question of mutations leading into evolution, mutations being one of the supposedly being one of the driving forces of evolution, changes in the DNA, which then selected for by natural selection produces new traits in animals, which eventually leads on to new species and new kinds of animals. That's the sort of general story that you see in evolution. So we're asking the question about mutations. Uh, we're asking the question, are they real, first of all? Secondly, what actually are they and how does that affect an animal? And would that ever lead on to new traits? Would that ever lead on to evolution? Is it an answer uh, for evolution as well? So we're going to be looking at all this kind of stuff today. Hopefully, John Mackay will come back to be able to do his program at some point um but uh do pray that his uh, electricity comes on but first if we go over to you craig for a little sort of uh, example and then we'll go on to diane which will really get into the meat of the topic before we have a break for some questions so craig over to you no worries okay so we've got to remember that mutations are, are actually mistakes they're they're an error in the gene um, genes of, of a creature, and they can only occur in the reproductive organs. It's, it's, it's no point to evolution if the mutations are happening in other parts of the body. It's got to happen in the reproductive organ. Uh, organ. So it's, um, it's a chance, it's a mistake, and it has to be passed on to the next generation as uh, something that's actually going to work for the creature to survive and evolve into something else. So just uh, going to be looking at um, the cygnathids because that's an area that I've got a lot to do with with our seahorse farm. So we breed the seahorses down here in Tassie. We send them all around the world. And we talked about these a couple of times on the show, but I'll just refresh a little bit. They're a group of animals. They're a family of animals that include the seahorse, but also sea dragons, which are only found in Australia in the wild. Uh, there's only three species of sea dragon. And there's a number of pipefish, pipe horses, and uh, pygmy pipe horses, uh, creatures that are sort of halfway between a seahorse and, and a pipe horse, if you like. Um, so I'm going to focus mostly on the breeding mm -hmm. part of this because they're an interesting bunch of animals where the male gives birth. He has a pouch. In fact, the seahorse that you can see there, if you look closely in his belly region, you can see a soft pouch there that's that's a male and uh, that's where he holds the baby it's the only creature known where the male actually gets pregnant and gives birth but in the other um, animals the pipefish the pipe horses the sea dragons they don't necessarily have pouches some of them do um, they often hold the eggs um, 
on on the tail or under the trunk of the body uh, with little egg caps or part pouches and things like this. So this is what we're going to look at. But it's the seahorse's navel that is novel. So an evolutionary novelty is something that you don't generally see in other creatures. It's something that's the evolutionist would say has evolved, um, a novelty that's evolved. And this particular paper that I'm focusing on today says this, that evolutionary novelties adorn the tree of life and yet their genetic origins remain a problem for biologists. And uh, I'm proposing that, and we propose here at Creation Research, that the problem that they have is because they're starting with the wrong premises. They're starting with the premise that things have evolved and weren't created. Uh, indeed, just a few sentences later, they say that the origin of novelties is now routinely viewed through the lens of evolutionary developmental biology. And there's their problem there. That's why they have uh, issues finding out where these novelties come from and arise. So just a, a, a very simple, simple recap of what evolution really is saying that less complex animals, uh, sorry, less complex animals evolve into more complex animals. To do that, to get from an amoeba to a, um, a complex human being or any other complex organ organism, you've actually got to gain genetic information. It's not just about errors in, in genes, it's about actually gaining new genes along the way. Whereas creation is, is going completely the other way. You're starting with complex created animals by an almighty creator and you're ending up in a, a now corrupted world with less complex or specialised animals within the same created kind. So there is some levels of change and Diane, I think, will probably discuss this a little bit more. There's some level of change, but overall the genetic information is lost. So it's going in a completely different direction. So here's the proposed evolutionary uh, program for seahorses. So it's evolving upwards from the, the bottom line. And you'll notice there on the gray line at the bottom, it says an unknown ancestor. They've got no idea about what that could have been really. Uh, you get up to the brown uh, bar there and it, talks about pipefish that don't have a brooding brood pouch. There's no pouch yet in, in, in them. You get up to the next level, the red one, the pipefish now has a brood, brood pouch and there are pipefish fishes out there with brood pouches and some without um, or certain levels of them. Then you get up to the yellow one, you've got the pipefish-like pygmy pipe horse um, and uh, it's saying that a prehensile tail evolves and we have talked about that in past programs. Um, that's the tail that curls up and can hold onto things. So the pipefish down the bottom can't do that. But then you continue up and um, the blue seahorse-like pygmy pipe horse has a lot more uh, features of a seahorse. And then you get to the seahorse at the top. Now, when you look over the top right, it's saying that all major evolutionary stages have surviving representatives. And that is indeed the case in this family now, this might be something that surprises some Christians and creation followers that um, we are proposing that these 
this group of animals may well have come from the one original created kind, but we're not proposing that they've evolved. We're proposing that it goes the other way. They've devolved. It starts with um, a seahorse or a seahorse-like creature and through uh, mutations and modifications and losses, as the creation model predicts, creatures lose or uh, have uh, mutations that aren't great for them. They lose information and it's going completely the other way. And it's saying there's no missing links. Well, that actually supports the creation model as well because you would expect if they're all still alive, um, then it's happened in relatively recent times over thousands of years and not millions. So indeed, my wife was at a conference in Florida uh, a number of years ago, and one of the biologists there said this about pipefish, that the long bodies of pipefish have evolved from a mutation in growth-regulating genes. So the genes that control the shape of the body have mutated, and, and uh, that's a mistake. Remember, it's a mistake, and therefore they kept elongating rather than um, taking the shape of the normal seahorse. So uh, let's focus on the actual brood pouch, however. These are the, the, the range of brood pouch um, uh, levels that you can get across the family of cygnathids. You have uh, a fully enclosed pouch, which is what the seahorse has. So you can see on the far right of this uh, picture, a male uh, Tasmanian seahorse, the Hippocampus abdominalis, that's got that big pillow-like pouch. Then you can have an, in, an enclosed type pouch uh, that has an inverted uh, slit, I suppose you'd say, down the side, and it would it sort of opens inwards, and the um, animals, the babies, would come out from there. Then you have an enclosed type of pouch that is everted, and uh, this is an example of, of one of those, uh, ribboned sea dragon it's called, and we've had these at our facility, um, beautiful animal, and it was long thought just to be a pipefish because often it, it's found as a dead creature washed up on a beach without those growths, those extensions on its body, and so it was long thought just to be a pipefish, but uh, is now, they're, they're calling it a sea dragon, and this is... Uh, some of the, the ways evolution works, it's what you call them, not uh, really uh, anything else that's pointing to evolution. So they actually, um, their, their pouch slits open outwards. So the best way I can describe this is like a, a flasher down the park, wanting to show you things that you shouldn't see, um, opening his coat and, uh, and, and it, the flaps of their skin sort of open like that and they wiggle their body and we've seen this happen and uh, that's how they release the, the live young. And then you have a much lesser um, pouch, a semi-enclosed one. Then you actually have individual egg compartments. So a weedy sea dragon can be like this where they're almost like little egg cups on the tail. And then you get lesser and lesser rudimentary plates. Um, so the banded pipefish uh, can have just little bits of skin uh, sort of holding onto the eggs. On, exposed on the undertail, and then you can have unprotected eggs that are just, just stuck on to the body. So this is the range of uh, pouch situations you can see in this family. Um, 
evolution model is saying basically that it's gone this way. The pipefish has gained all of these things over time and ended up with a, a pouch, a prehensile tail, bent head, different form, and becomes a seahorse. Uh, the creation model is saying they're either created as completely separate kinds, but I, uh, because there's so many similar features uh, with the fused snout, the, the, the tails and so on, I tend to believe that they probably were an originally created kind that have devolved um, from a seahorse downwards through mutations um, and uh, losses of genes and things like that. In fact, um, can pregnancy come from random mutations? Um, the fact that it's the male that gives birth, um, uh, can that just happen through mutations? But just look at how many genes are actually involved in this. Um, this is from the paper that um, I was focusing on. Our genome-based analysis of male pregnancy in the gulf pipefish revealed a transcriptionally rich brood pouch in which over 73% of annotated genes, that's the genes that they've sort of identified and, and noted, so not even all of the genes, were expressed robustly in over a 1,000 of the genes that they were looking at were differentially expressed as a consequence of pregnancy. So basically they're saying the genes, uh, there's a 1,000 genes of the ones that we've looked at that are turned on as a result of pregnancy. There's no small number of genes. It's not just a mutation in one or two genes that are involved in the pregnancy. They're admitting that there's over a thousand of them. Now that takes an extraordinary faith to believe that that can happen by chance. Um, but where did pipefish come from in the first place? So they're saying um, in their paper that gene losses and other changes have occurred in pipefish gene families, which are candid candidate mechanisms for the evolution of all of these traits in the Signathid family, including an elongated axis and the loss of ribs, pelvic fins and teeth. Now this, um, as I read through this quite extensive paper, over and over again, they were talking about the loss of genes, the loss of gene groups, the loss of features. Over and over again, it's the loss of things. And this is not evolution. This is a loss. Um, so uh, someone writing on this particular paper said this, the two signathid genomes, which is uh, pipefish and seahorse uh, that they're talking about, show that losses in specific genes or gene functions are responsible for evolutionary innovations. Now, that's really, when you think about it, a stupid statement. Um, that is just ridiculous that... Um, you can believe that evolution is a result of losing information. In fact, the paper itself talks about multiple losses of genes. So from a, a book, um, a very extensive book on seahorses generally um, uh, by Rudy Kuda, an Australian guy, um, great, uh, very, very experienced uh, in, in fish and seahorses and this family in particular, and the bit highlighted there in yellow, um, he, he says that in fossils, the various features that were common between different groups uh, may have degenerated in modern species, such as certain fins. Some extinct forms represented links between different living groups. Now, that may be so. 
Uh, I don't hold tightly to that. Um, but if anything, it's showing the degeneration that he, the word that he uses himself in that statement, have degenerated in modern species. This is not evolution. So I'll just finish with um, just my own worded statement about what uh, evolution's prediction is. So we're often criticised uh, in, in creation circles that uh, we're not science because we don't make predictions. And that's utterly false. Uh, evolution makes a prediction and effectively in this area it's saying that accumula accumulated genetic mutations allow an almost limitless range of possible life forms to evolve from single-celled organisms. In fact, it's worse than that because the single-celled organisms have to evolve from dirt uh, or a primordial soup, and uh, that's never been shown to be possible either. Um, so you've got all of the ranges of life on Earth today have arisen from errors in a genetic code originally from at least a single-celled organism that didn't have that many genes. Whereas creation predictions are that there's genetic boundaries. Um, and so this is what I've suggested, that speciation may occur due to mutations, gene loss <clears throat> or genetic rearrangement. So there's three parts to this. It's not just mutations, uh, as in the paper I've just uh, proposed there, uh, that gene losses occur and, and, and may stop things forming as they normally would have. Uh, or in fact, genetic rearrangement in the chromosomes, but only that only happens within the created kind. So our challenge is to define ultimately what a created kind is. And if we had a fraction of the resources that the evolutionary um, science bodies do, then we might be a lot closer to knowing what some of those created kinds are. Um, but it doesn't finish there. The degree of possible change <coughs> is always limited by the effect that the accumulated gene degradation has on a creature's ability to survive. So if those gene faults or losses end up causing such a, a disastrous impact on the animal that it dies or can't survive properly, then it's extinct, it's gone. Um, but if the change is such that it can still survive, um, uh, then, then It'll be there and you'll see uh, that. And that's what I think is, is happening within the Signathid family group. So, so that's uh, what I had to present. If you want to come back to the group. Thanks, Sam. Thank you very much for that, uh, Craig. That was a great introduction there to the topic. So thank you for that. Um, we'll go over to Diane now for her section. Then we'll have a bit, bit of a break for questions. So if you do have... Um, any questions do get them in now uh, remember to put the queue and then put your question and that makes it easier for us to find it when it comes to it so we'll have a question time after diane's next presentation and you've got a few comments to make as well later Glenn, about yeah, mm -hmm. yeah so we'll come back to you as well um so hopefully we have a nice full program despite uh, john dropping off because of a power cut so uh, diane over to you yes indeed if we can start with my slides here um Yes, that was a, a good example of um, what's claimed to be evolution, and it's certainly changed. But notice how often they referred to gene loss. 
So mutations certainly are real. They happen, they do change things, but they don't make anything evolve. So let's have a look at that. Uh, a mutation is simply a change in, evil, in uh, genetic information, and they are considered to be what drives evolution. Um, this is a quote I found in uh, a scientific paper a few years ago, but this is basically the mindset that the evolutionists have. Mutation is the engine that drives evolution and adaptation forward in that it generates the variation on which natural selection acts. Now, that's important. If you remember back to a few weeks ago when we did a couple of programs on why evolution won't work and we concentrated on natural selection and made the point that selection just literally selects things. It chooses things from already existing options, but it doesn't explain where the original options came from and where the changes came from. It's just a means of allowing some things to survive and other things to uh, die out. <clears throat> so if you combine mutations and selection, the standard sort of story is that mutations result in good and bad changes to genetic information. Natural selection weeds out the bad mutations, leaves the good ones. And so over time, the good ones should build up and produce some kind of new living thing. So overall, somehow we started out life as chemicals and then by a whole series of processes, including mutations uh, over a long time with the struggle for life and the war of nature, somehow we came into existence. So we've gone from molecules to uh, human beings. And well, that's a nice story, but there is a problem. There aren't any good mutations. There aren't any mutations that actually improve structures and functions. Now, did you notice in Craig's presentation about seahorses and pipefish, the number of times they referred to gene loss, genuine change, but not improvement and not new structures or functions. Now, none of the mutations we have observed build whole new structures and functions. And this is no surprise when you consider how mutations come about. So what are the things that cause mutations? Uh, well, basically there are external and internal things, um, chemicals and radiation from the outside. And then there are also copy, uh, copying errors. In our cells, we are constantly copying DNA. And sometimes that goes wrong. We also have repair mechanisms. So there are lots of backups inside our cells, but sometimes even the repair processes um, don't work or uh, get uh, knocked out. So uh, it's interesting that the uh, if we go back to the external ones, particularly um, whenever there's been an accident and there's been a massive sort of pollution or a, a nuclear uh, problem, uh, like with the um, uh, nuclear reactors in Japan and Russia, do you hear any evolutionists come up and say, oh, well, just there'd be lots of wonderful new things that are going to evolve? No, the, the uh, environmentalists who are all evolutionists um, will... Uh, 
wail and moan loudly that we've messed up the environment. And, and yes, we have, but nobody's claiming that anything new is going to evolve out of that. In fact, we want to stop mutations. Mm, so yeah. the results of mutations are that genetic information is degraded. Chance random processes, which, which is what you get from those external and internal problems, always result in gene loss. So randomly knocking around the genome does not improve things any more than if you randomly knock around some computer code. That's not going to build uh, a better electronic devices. Now, occasionally you can get uh, neutral changes that don't cause disease or disability, but random processes don't add new genetic information. Uh, what we see is gene loss with the, the examples that uh, Craig gave, and those are not unique. So let's have a look at maybe um, this applied to supposed human evolution. Uh, now, back in 1999, I came across this article called The Odds of Losing at Genetic Roulette. Now, like gambling in a casino, chance random processes eventually you lose, or very quickly you lose. And in this article, they made the point, the number of harmful mutations that arise has been measured, and it is surprisingly high. Now, this was just before the first draft of the human genome, but there had been a lot of studies of individual uh, genes and, um, and groups of genes. And so these scientists who wrote this review article uh, had gathered together uh, a lot of this information and they came up with the conclusion that uh, with each generation there were three new deleterious that's damaging mutations per person per generation. What's the significance of this? Well keep in mind that they believe that human beings evolved from ape-like creatures over at least uh, you know three million years possibly as long as six and they went on to make the point that every deleterious mutation must eventually be eliminated from the population by a premature death or reduced relative reproductive success. Okay, so that's natural selection, right? Survival of the fittest, uh, struggle for life at work. And what happens with the damaging mutations is that the... Um, creature that is carrying them will eventually die. So you have a genetic death. Now, if you add all of that up over supposed millions of years, you end up with three genetic deaths per person, if we, if we believe that. And they asked the, the question, well, why aren't we extinct? If all this gene loss is going on, uh, what's happening? Now, since then, we have had a real revolution, a complete revolution in uh, genome studies. We've had the original Human Genome Project, and then we've had a whole heap of other genome studies. And we're learning a lot about how genes work. And one of the things that's important, it's not just the genes for our body structure and, uh, and our enzymes and how they work, but also how genes are regulated. And so we've, we're getting in some really interesting results from various projects that have come out of the Human Genome Project. This was an interesting one. It was called the Thousand Genomes Project, but in fact, they ended up analysing uh, far more than just 1,000. It started out um, looking at uh, 1,000 and uh, 
back in the early 2000s, that was considered to be a fairly ambitious project. It still is. And they looked at uh, human genomes from various ethnic groups. And uh, one of the significant things they did was they managed to get a few groups of genomes from succeeding generations so they could see what changes were happening as you move from generation to generation. And here is uh, some of the results that have been reported. There are lots of reports uh, that, that arose out of this project and, and other similar ones. Now, notice this. On average, each person is found to carry approximately 250 to 300 loss of function variants in annotated genes and 50 to 100 variants which are previously implicated in inherited disorders. We've known about genetic diseases for quite a long time, and we're gradually drilling down to find out sort of what exactly has gone wrong with the hope that maybe we can do something about it. Um, here's another interesting result that, that uh, came out of some of these genome studies. Um, this was a headline in uh, a general news service called news.com. Uh, human beings are getting dumber. Now, we think we're at the top of the evolutionary tree. Uh, we're getting smarter. Uh, but this was from a, a review article called Our Fragile Inter Intellect from Trends in Genetics. And uh, recent human genome studies revealed that there are per generation about 60 new mutations per genome and about 100 heterozygous mutations per genome that are predicted to produce loss of function, some of which are likely to affect genes involving in the human intellect. All right, so we're talking about lots of gene loss or at least loss of function in that genes are becoming less effective, even if they are not completely lost. Now, there are all sorts of estimates uh, flinging around, so you will see different numbers. And in general, the overall results from looking at all of these genome studies is, well, there are defunct genes for all of us, so we should ask the question, well, why is anyone alive and functioning if all of these genes are going wrong? Um, at such a rapid rate. Part of the solution is that genes actually come in pairs. And normally, uh, if you have one defunct gene or one down-regulated gene where its, it's uh, function has been uh, diminished, right, that is compensated by, for by a normal gene. So we all carry two copies of just about all of our genes and when these are uh, passed on to the next generation, only one of those copies will be passed on to the next generation. So let's have a look uh, at that process. So if you have two parents, one of whom has uh, a mix of normal and defunct genes and the other has normal genes, uh, with each generation, the pairs get split up and only one gene from each parent gets passed on to the uh, offspring. So you have uh, mixing and matching. So the possible offspring from these two parents would be uh, two offspring that inherit two normal genes and two that inherit uh, a mix, normal and uh, lost ones. Now, supposing you get two parents who are outwardly 
normal have normal genes but or a normal function from that gene but are carrying the defunct one when they get separated and remixed for the next generation there is a one in four chance that you end up with the two defunct ones coming together and effectively that gene is lost so that's the genetic death for that gene now if you then go to a bigger population where you've got uh, a whole lot of people, some of which will be silently carrying the defunct genes. After generations of mixing and matching within that population, you will get the two defunct genes coming together and that gene is lost for this person. Now, this is a serious problem in small groups, in small populations that can only interbreed with one another. And in fact, uh, this is the reason for the ban on close family marriages in most cultures. Um, even without knowing any genetics or about DNA, people have observed that when you've got a small population that only breeds within one another, you do get uh, genetic diseases and some of those result from genes just being lost. And uh, so in our normal population, after um, however many generations we've had since the, the beginning uh, of human beings, we're all carrying around inactive genes. Now, this was an estimate that was made quite a while ago. It's probably changed now, but in general, we are all carrying around inactive <coughs> genes. So sure enough, um, and this was another project that came out of that uh, thousand genome project. And so every newborn's DNA carries more than 60 new mutations, some of which lead to uh, birth defects, including cancers. We have to remember that cancer is a disease where genes have gone, gone wrong during our own life, but we actually, some of us actually carry uh, a propensity for getting cancer. So that's uh, defects that we've inherited fr from the previous generations. So there are new mutations for all of us. Mutations definitely are us, but we're not evolving. We may not be dead, but we are deficient, okay? Even if we go from that estimate uh, of that particular project I just referred to then, right? 60 new mutations and 20 missing genes. Now, this fits with the biblical history of the world rather than the evolutionary history of the world. If we go back, look at the big picture of uh, the history of the world, it started out very good. We see evidence of design, of complex creatures uh, like the, the seahorses that, um, that, that Craig showed us. But the world didn't stay that way. It's been affected by human sin and God's judgment. And since then, a whole lot of bad processes have gone on, including mutations. So yes, there's lots of change, but eventually they lead to loss and death. Now, sometimes the evolutionists will say, well, some mutations survive for generations um, and they become fixed in the population. Does that make them good? Well, here are just briefly a couple of other examples of how uh, mutations may become fixed in, in a population and survive. Uh, anyone recognize these? These are wild budgerigars 
Um, wild budgerigars live in Australia. They're actually a, a type of, of small parrot, actually, and you get flocks of thousands of them. And they are all uniformly um, green and yellow. They're very, very, very pretty little birds. And if you look at them closely, there's yes, a bit of variation in their, um, their body color, but basically they are green and yellow. But uh, if you have uh, budgerigars as a pet, you'll notice there's quite a bit of variation in their color and you get uh, budgerigars that are blue and white and those are quite popular. So what's happened? Have the budgerigars evolved some blue genes? Um, well, no, in fact, it's actually a gene loss. The uh, white head comes from an absence of the yellow pigment. Blue is actually a structural colour in birds. Now, what that means is it's not a blue pigment. It's actually um, a microscopic uh, structure. If you look under a microscope at the structure of the feathers, they have these very, very fine, it's nanotechnology. Uh, God invented that, we didn't and where light is scattered and reflected, and that's how you get the blue color. So to get green, you have a combination of green and yellow. And uh, so if there is no yellow pigment, the blue structural color is what you see. And people like that. And so they have bred these deliberately. And so you have got selection, it's artificial selection, and you do maintain this. So that's one type of selection where you do get uh, a gene loss becoming fixed in the, uh, in the population. Now, the evolutionists might concede on that one and say, all right, um, uh, that, that was a deliberate uh, selection, but uh, they still believe that mutations and selection work out in the wild world. Um, are there any examples of that? Well, here's one that we did report about uh, in, in our newsletter uh, only fairly recently in 2022, uh, rather. Um, and we answered the question, can mutations produce a major change in body form? So just fiddling around on the outside with... Um, can you get a major change in body form? Well, we've seen one example of that with the seahorses and the pipefish. You do did get you know, quite a significant change in the body form. But uh, as Craig pointed out, it's actually a loss. Um, and can natural selection preserve these sorts of mutations? Uh, well, this was an interesting example in a plant now, anyone recognize these? These are very popular garden plants called uh, aquilegias or sometimes called granny's bonnets. And uh, we reported about these because there was an interesting claim made about a mutated version of these, which were called hopeful monsters. Now, you may not uh, know that term. It's rather a, a quirky summary of a theory that came out in the 1930s uh, from an evolutionist named uh, Goldsmith, Goldschmidt. Uh, it was revived in the 1970s by Stephen Jay Gould and some of his colleagues uh, that 
a mutation of a single gene can produce sudden large changes. And so that was the, um, the where the term hopeful monster came. The word monster does not originally mean big things. It means things that are changed in their form. Uh, the, the word itself has changed its meaning. Maybe that's a type of evolution, but in fact, it's creation because it has to go through a human mind in order to happen. But anyway, back, back to uh, back to our plants. This theory disappeared uh, back in the 1970s, basically from lack of evidence, until there was this recent claim where some scientists were studying a particular type of flower, uh, of uh, variations of uh, aquilegias, and they found a mutated flower uh, that looked quite different but was uh, the same species or the same kind as the uh, other aquilegias, um, and it's called um, <clears throat> a, a, a hopeful monster because it is significantly different in its flower form, and yet it grows out in the wild and survives. It hasn't been deliberately bred just for the uh, florist trade. And what they found is that Evolution can occur in a, this is the claim that they made, evolution can occur in a big jump if the right kind of gene in, is involved when it's broken. Now, notice again, you've got this evolution by gene loss or evolution by gene breaking, right? When it's broken, these instructions aren't there anymore, and that mm -hmm. causes a completely different organ, a sepal, uh, to develop. We did not have a good example of a hopeful monster due to a single change until now. So they've made quite a, a, a big claim, right? We've found this hopeful monster. And they deconstructed, uh, very helpfully, they deconstructed the flower to show us how this happens. So on the left, we have the wild type flower, on the right, the mutant flower. And if you pull it apart, you can see the components that make up a flower. It has sepals around the outside, then a row of petals, and then the reproductive parts, which is the uh, the pollen and the, uh, the female pollen receptive part. Now, notice the main difference, or the only difference really here, is that the mutant flower has two rows of sepals. Now, note that the wild-type flower already had sepals, so nothing new has developed. So they haven't generated anything new. And uh, the interesting thing is, um, <clears throat> why did this uh, plant survive when it's actually lost a whole structure? And that is significant. Notice that the petals have these sort of long tubes um, projecting from them. And that is where the nectar is. Now, normally these plants are pollinated by moths, which have a long proboscis, which uh, goes down the that uh, tube where the uh, moth can drink some nectar. But in order to do that, it needs to bring its head close to where the uh, pollen is. And so that's how the plant transfers its pollen. Um, how did the mutant plant survive? There must be something good about them. Well, yes, it's genuine survival. Uh, Aquilegias can be um, pollinated by bees. They produce plenty of pollen and the uh, bees will collect and transfer pollen and the mutated plants still have pollen. Now, the other interesting thing is that deer and aphids uh, normally 
prey on, eat these plants, but for some reason or other, the deer in this local area uh, and uh, didn't particularly like them and neither did the aphids. So they survived. So we have real survival of the fittest here, but we still don't have any examples. Um, so this is a rare example where one gene has actually changed the body form of an organism, but uh, let's be a bit more generous and uh, give the evolutionists some wriggle room and, uh, or, and let them have multiple mutations. Can you get a complete change in body form with multiple mutations? Well, in fact, you can. And it's interesting uh, that evolutionists claim that four-legged short-bodied reptiles like a lizard evolved into legless, long-bodied creatures, um, which we call snakes, and they believe that that happened by evolutionists. But then they turn around and scoff at us if we claim that snakes used to have legs and God somehow removed them. Uh, there's a, a, a bit of hypocrisy, hypocrisy there, but uh, we do need to ask the question, how did snakes get legless? Because genetics has enabled us to understand how that process happened. Uh, and the interesting thing is there are a lot of genes involved in this, but there's one particular one that's very prominent and it rejoices in the name of Sonic Hedgehog. And honest, that that is its name. And Sam, you would be interested to know it was named uh, after a video game. Uh, but uh, if we can come back to us, I think um, John was going to tell us uh, some interesting things about snakes, but I think, Joseph, you might have to uh, take over from that. Yeah, as well. we've got some extra content to cover and stuff, so thank yeah, you very much indeed. for that, uh, for that mm. Diane. I just wanted to mention as well, because you mentioned about one of the environmental, uh, environmental factors of um, mm. mutations. Uh, we're in Tennessee at the moment, mm -hmm. and when John first brought me here in 2019, he introduced me to a very well-known uh, geological layer known as the Chattanooga mm. Shale, right? named after Chattanooga, which is just south mm. of here where we are, uh, but it spreads over an enormous amount, almost a third of continental USA. So it's a pretty large deposit, definitely a flood deposit. Mm. It's Devonian. It's full of plants that shouldn't really be there. But uh, the interesting thing about it is it is actually mildly radioactive. So it does have some implications for people who choose to build their houses on it. Um, but what we found interesting is on the surface, most of the time, the radioactivity doesn't reach you, doesn't do much until you dig down into it, build a like basement. A basement, for instance, or you need to have a road. And so you'll actually make a road cut through the shale in order to put a road there. Now, of course, road cut means you've got now got cliffs basically right at the side um big sharp cliffs and plants will naturally begin to break down the rock and start to grow in it and as we were moving along the chattanooga shale one day looking for these fossils inside of it we noticed that in this road cut almost every single plant was a mutated variety and now it wasn't getting better it had curled up leaves it had yellowy patches where the chlorophyll couldn't function properly it had somewhere the plant would grow and then would just 
end up stop growing and end up being a little stump at the end, right? Um, highly mutated plants, and they were all along this, but just outside, growing on the top, they're absolutely fine. So it appears to be where you've had this uh, radioactive material come to the surface, be exposed, and your plants are now reacting as a result of it, and they weren't evolving, they weren't getting better, they were going downhill for sure, right? Um, so this environmental factor really is a serious thing, uh, particularly if you expose yourself deliberately uh, by digging down into radioactive uh, material. Anyway, um, let's have a little bit of a break there. We've got about 30 minutes of the program yeah, left yeah. or so. So uh, let's go over to Sam for some questions uh, and we'll uh, have a tackle of a few questions and some thank yous as well. And uh, then uh, you've got a few quotes you'd like to talk about. Yeah. So we'll go to Sounds Glenn good. after that. All righty. Uh, so let's go first over to Doki Doki. Uh, he's coming in swinging with 149 US buckaroos, a red box of popcorn. Thank you so much, Doki. Could do with a nice little snack at the minute. Uh, and also as well, we've got a super sticker from Douglas Boffy, five British buckaroos, a pair character doing a classic mic drop. Yes, uh, you, uh, we've got the uh, £100 donation from Douglas. Uh, so uh, bless you for that, mate. Uh, you will live in infamy as the highest donator ever, unless someone beats you by a pound or something. Anyway, um, and then we've got uh, Stacey H coming in with uh, 1999 US buckaroos. May the Lord bless everyone. Bless you, Stacey. Good to see you on the program again, Stacey. And uh, George coming in with 10 Aussie buckaroos. There is no known observable mechanism to account for new anatomical features. There's lots of storytelling, though. Which is a very good. That's that's very good, George. Very yeah. good. Um, well, a question for you, Craig. Uh, this comes in from Anne. Uh, have seahorses been found fossilized? Ah, yes, yes, indeed. And in fact, uh, Joseph was one that uh educated me a little bit on this, um, suggesting that most of the seahorse and pipefish fossils that we we find, or if not all, uh, seem to be in deposits that are likely to be post flood deposits. Okay, so in other words, any of the variations that might have occurred in a, a de degraded world have then been captured in post-flood um, deposits. But uh, I've got one there on a screen I've shared if you if you um, want to put that up just to, to give an example. This one's, uh, I think, called Hippocampus ramulosus. Um, it's from Italy, and uh, we've, we've got a couple of those in our collection, a creation research collection. Um, but also in these papers I was looking at preparing for today, uh, there was talk of other seahorse fossils out there that are, well, I think their words were superficially uh, very much like um, living seahorses today. So there you go. Um, they're certainly there and they really don't show a great deal of change. Um, but maybe some some intermediate or degenerated features as per the, the, the comment I finished with from Rudy Kuda. Great stuff. Great stuff. Thank you for that, Craig. Uh, right. Um, I've got a uh, question coming from George here. Here we go. Uh, George uh, says the MO1 bacteria has seven tails of 24 synchronized and interconnected gears. How can mistakes do that? Furthermore, there are numerous molecular machines in the genome, like the polymerase, uh, editase, etc., that perform through decision-making algorithms. Mistakes don't have foresight. 
Diane. <laughs> well, I think the summary at the end is rather good. Mistakes don't have foresight. Uh, no, um, no one's ever improved anything by mistakes. Uh, I can uh, certainly attest for that when uh, I write things for, for our newsletter. In fact, I think we all can. <laughs> it, it, it's like saying that uh, um, typographical errors will write encyclopedias. It just doesn't happen. And then if you try and translate uh, that information into actual structures and functions, it doesn't build better houses, it doesn't build better machinery. So I, I think you've answered your own question. Uh, uh, if anyone else would like to, uh, to add to that. Uh, I think, you know, the DNA and the RNA, it's, it's a lot like computer programming. I used to write computer yes. programs. Now, I didn't write in machine language. That would be like the DNA. I was more like the RNA. I'd write a program which would tell the machine mm -hmm. how to write it. And, uh, you know, all the times that I made mistakes, it never improved my program. <laughs> They say garbage in equals garbage out. If if mm. I made a mistake, just the slightest little mistake in my programming. Now, you know, keep in mind, this goes back to the old punch cards where you type it up and you have a card and it's got little punch holes and one little hole is off, you know, and the program doesn't work mm. and it doesn't give you a good answer. Well, the same's through true with the, the genetics, just a little slight change in it's not going to make this improvement. And for to get a new organism, you've got to have vast quantities of new DNA created. That doesn't happen, does it, Diane? No, no, it doesn't. You can duplicate DNA, but that doesn't give you new information. So um, that that doesn't give you new uh, understanding. You, you, you've just made a copy of the same information that you already had. It doesn't explain the origin of the information origin. in the first place. Uh, and that's an important point that we mm. will come to. Mm. And it also mm. as well, like just to just add to, to the, what you were saying, uh, Glenn, um, I used to do, um, I used to write websites uh, using HTML, CSS and JavaScript, which are coding languages. Mm -hmm. And just one character in a line and the the rest of the code from that point downwards would just all just not work it had to be just pinpoint mm. precise with everything um and just quite often you were sat there scratching your head just like why is this not working I, and then you realize you've made a typo you've made like mm. a, you put a full stop in where you shouldn't have put a full stop in or a comma or yeah. an exclamation mark or mm. something um and it's marked as a comment or what, what have you it's the same with dna you know the slight slightest mm individual minuscule change and it can have disastrous effects um on the rest of the dna just... and, and the complexity of the dna is so amazing because it's mm -hmm. a you know it's got a base of four four letters and we write these advanced computer codes in two numbers zeros and ones that's you know amazing me the complexity in the dna mm. Mm. exactly do you want to do one more question yes Let's have one more question all right, then. Well, first of all, we've got a little interjection. Ryan Hubbard says, hello, son. Oh, hello. Um, and uh, who little old me comes in with a question here. Uh, were the seahorses larger, like many things, before the flood? Craig, I have a feeling we're going to you for this one. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, th there's no no fossils out there um, that, that are larger, so there's no knowledge of that. Um, interestingly, 
However, the Greeks, when they found um, young seahorses in the Mediterranean, used to think they were the spawning of giant ones um, that were used by Poseidon to drag his chariot through the, the undersea. So that, that's what they believed of them. But no, there's been none found. In fact, I've, if you want to share the screen again, I can show you a pipefish example next to a modern pipefish. Uh, that's not coming up on mine. Um, it's not coming it's up not on mine either. either. Hang on, let me try uh, taking it off and putting it back on again. No, that's not working either. It's uh, showing wanna... up in the, in, the, in the preview, but it's Yeah, the preview. Do you want to stop sharing and share it again? Uh, yes. Well, how do I... Oh, yeah, Show this so at the Yes, at the uh, fossil show, one of the things we wanted was to find living fossils. Well, this is one of my favorites. Do you know Ooh. what that is? I assume the audience knows that, what that is. That's a... Uh, some is a crayfish or prawn it's a shrimp oh, it's a beautiful yeah beautiful fossil really nice example Ooh, really nice example. oh yes yeah. it's lovely oh, yeah. it's, the, it's got the colors on it as well mm -hmm. and that's but, from the solnhofen which is in germany that's the jurassic rock so mm -hmm. this is supposed to be around 159 million years old and it's it's a shrimp it's or still a, a shrimp or a prawn as well. <laughs> yes it, it has a change the only difference between that and what we have now is what we have now. My wife would uh, cook it up for us and we would eat it. Um, oh, I'm glad they haven't evolved. They might have evolved into something inedible. Uh, tasty, yeah. <laughs> I'll try that now, Sam. I'll, I'll put it up again. Yeah, there, there we go. Yeah. So, so that, that's showing a, a, basically an alligator pipefish uh, next to a fossil one, and uh, they're basically the same size. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same creature, same size. Even if you want to say it's 20 million years old, it hasn't changed. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. After Great it's stuff. Fine. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming in. We uh, may have time for a quick question answer at the end. But, um, Glenn, you've been reading a new book recently. It, well, John put me on to it because John read the original book by Michael Denton, and it was titled Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. Now, this was from 1985. Um, that this book was written. And uh, I'm just going to start off with a quote that we've used many times before, uh, a quote by Darwin. It says, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Well, uh, Michael Denton is uh, got a medical degree and he's got a PhD in biochemistry and he's certainly not a young earth creationist by any stretch. Um, but he had some interesting things to say in his original book and he summed it up with this. He says the basic topological axioms that classes are absolutely distinct, that classes possess unique diagnostic characters that these diagnostic characteristics are present and fundamentally invariant, in non-changing form in all members of a class apply almost universally throughout the entire realm of life. And it's that understanding that allowed Charles Linnae to develop the phyletic, the taxonomic system. We have a taxonomic system that allows us to classify whether we're talking plants, animals, uh, all the way down to the species level because they fit 
into certain types, certain homologues. And uh, that's basically what Michael Denton uh, writes about. He says, the living world is organized into a hierarchy of ever more inclusive classes or types, each clearly defined by a new unique homologue or suite of homologues possessed by all the members of the type. That's how the classification system works. Well, this is what he has found in his years of research. And what he did was he came back 30 years later and rewrote his book because in 30 years, we've learned a lot about DNA. We've had 30 more years of finding fossils. And so maybe the conclusions, you know, have changed. Uh, but he says, the for readers subjected to popular or pervasive claims by evolutionary biologists that there are innumerable transitional forms of organisms, it might come as something of a surprise that there are unique taxon-defining novelties not led up to gradually from some antecedent form and which remain invariant after their actualization. In short, nature is still very much an empirical discontinu uh, discontinuum. That means it's not a continuum of small gradations, but there are discontinuities of invariant unique forms. And there is no direct evidence that the gaps were ever closed by the functional continuums demanded by Darwinian theory. All talk of transitional forms or intermediate forms, and even the use of the word evolution is largely empty rhetoric. And uh, this is well known among evolutionists. He concludes this, division, especially where it appears profound, is counter, into, is counter evidence against the whole notion of gradual transmutation. 30 years later, despite the discovery of a huge number of new fossil forms and despite massive advances in every field of biology, especially EVO, DEVO, evolution, de-evolution, de it is still overwhelmingly true, as I insisted in my previous book on that he's talking about, that uh, I insisted in evolution. And he says, as Darwin confessed 150 years ago. So it, it's clearly recognized that we have these distinct forms. The Bible talks about them as kinds. And the Bible is very clear, all life forms reproduce after their kind. Now there's tremendous variation within those. So we can have these species within a kind, but they cannot change kinds. And the transitional forms are still non-existent. So what Michael Denton is essentially saying, mixed up with a lot of jargon in there, the jargon. but he's effectively saying, and he's honest enough to admit, there are three major problems with evolution. Number one, the creatures appear to be in kinds inherently, which is what scripture says it should be, and they don't change. Number two, you have no mechanism for changing the kinds. And number three, you have no evidence that the kinds ever changed at any point in the past. And, and they were really the three main things that evolution depends on. So let me just take over just for a minute or so uh, and talk about uh, two more aspects of this sort of mutation thing, right? Because we've spoken a lot about mutations, we've spoken a lot about changes, a lot about mistakes, and a lot about DNA. And of course, the big question is, well, what is DNA? 
Because even if you could prove, even if you could show, even if you could demonstrate that mistakes happen that lead to beneficial traits, that doesn't actually explain one of two things. Number one, it doesn't explain where the DNA came from in the first mm -hmm. place. And number two, it still doesn't prove that that's the way that life evolved. All right. So let's just briefly look at those two points and start off with DNA as a design. And we've spoken about design lots and lots of times on creation research. And uh, you'll know that the famous definition of design, which John Mackay promotes and we've sort of taken on in order to define a design, you are looking for a end result, a product that does not uh, that has properties rather that do not come from the materials it's made of. All right, break that down into something fairly simple. What is a car? It is a 100% moving object made out of 100% non-moving parts, right? Metal, lumps of metal, lumps of rock, lumps of trees, right, where the rubber comes from, uh, and uh, fuel buried in rock layers do not inherently hold properties that put themselves together into a moving vehicle. In order to do that, in order to get a moving vehicle, in order to get something uh, an end product that has properties that moves you, you actually have to have an intelligent designer take those individual properties and put them together in a way that produces an end product with properties that do not come from the material that it's made from, i.e. the car moves and the steering wheel goes in the right way and the wheels turn the right way when you move the steering wheel and when you press the middle it honks, right? These are all properties that do not come from the raw materials. If you really want to break it down even simpler, I mean, think about things like John famously uses the example of the boomerang. We can use the example of the guitar, right? Guitar is made out of wood and horsehair. Well, you can strum trees and horses as much as you like. You're never going to produce, uh, you know, Mozart symphonies. Um, but if you take those raw materials and if you're not part of those raw materials, if you existed before the end product of the guitar and if you're far cleverer than the guitar, you can actually take those individual components and carve them and shape them into a musical instrument. You can take wood, which when you throw wood doesn't come back to you, but you can carve it into an aeroplane wing, put an airfoil on one end, and when you throw it, it does come back to you, and we call it a boomerang. Now, all of these end products have examples and properties that do not inherently come from within the material that it's made from. It's the same with a stone tool and, and all of this kind of stuff. And then we ask the question of information. Right. And we inherently know that information comes from an intelligent source because, you know, that if you took a pen and paper, locked it in a safe for 100 years, came back in 100 years time and somebody had written on it. Hello. Ah, somebody. You know, if you came back and just found it with the words on it, which said, hello, my name is Dave, you would instantly know that somebody called Dave went in there and wrote it. It didn't happen by itself. And you could shake that safe around for a million years. You still wouldn't get a coherent code out of it. So every example we've ever seen of information tells us that it comes from an intelligent source. But information itself, well, how do we define that? Well, you can define it simply by it being a design. Information has properties that do not come from the materials that it's made of. Now, there are lots of different materials that can produce information or can come together to form information, right? Paper and pen. You could even get, you know, pieces of rice and piece it out in the English language, right? You could make dots and dashes, beeps and bumps, you know, these can all make codes, but the code originates from an intelligent source. 
in every single case. <clears throat> like when you're dealing with a computer code, you have ones and zeros. In fact, they're not even really ones and zeros because one means one, zero means nothing. But ones and zeros in a computer code is just really a dash and a circle. And uh, it has no inherent information in dashes and circles to code for a computer which says, take this image <laughs> of this person, send it down the computer and broadcast it to all of your phones, right? It doesn't do that inherently. But if you get somebody who existed before the computer code, somebody who's not part of the computer code, somebody who's far greater and more powerful than the computer code, they can take ones and noughts and put them together into a sequence which tells the computer to do something or even Glenn's punching your old holes, right, to make a computer system. It's the same principle. Now, this always comes from an intelligent source, and computer codes bear the hallmarks of being designed, because it is a code. The code inherently has properties that do not come from the materials that make that code up. And then we get to DNA, right? <clears throat> DNA is the code of life. You're supposed to have mistakes within the DNA, mistakes within that information, which can lead on to new, uh, you know, traits, which lead on to new species. But how do you get the DNA in the first place? Because it's a code. It's made up of sugars, phosphates, and carbon. Now, you probably ate most of that for your breakfast. And uh, while some of it may have coded for life once if you had your bacon this morning, a lot of it probably didn't. And so you're eating these raw substances, and they have no inherent property to be able to turn themselves back into a living creature. And yet sugars, phosphates, carbons, all by themselves right? If they're put together in the right way, if they're put together an intelligent source, they create a four-dimensional coding structure, a coding structure which codes in a linear plane, in two dimensions, three dimensions because it's a physical object, and it changes over time to code for something else. It's a four-dimensional coding structure beyond any computer code that we've ever dreamt of. Um, you see, DNA bears all of the hallmarks of actually being designed. And it's designed to not evolve, right? It's designed to not change. It's designed to be self-correcting. It's designed to stop mutations. Now, you and I live in a fallen world where mutations are indeed a reality. We've spoken about that all tonight, right? But inherently, um, DNA is designed to not evolve, to not make mistakes, and it comes from an intelligent source. There's no doubt about it. It has to come from an intelligent source because it has properties that do not come from the raw materials that it's made of. So even if you want to argue that mutations can happen, which lead on to new developments, you still have to try and explain where the DNA came from in the first place, because mm -hmm. it has to come from an intelligent source. Well, scriptures tell us what the intelligent source is. It's the word who is Jesus Christ, who made all things. And by his word, all things were created, everything under heaven and earth. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Right? It states that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So there's your first point, right? Secondly, we've spoken a lot about tonight about some of the problems with mutations, as in the problems that they cause, the fact they don't create new information. But even if you could use an example, even if you were able to demonstrate an example of mutations producing new information, which we never have done, but even if you could do that, <coughs> would that still prove that evolution happened? No, because you're observing something happening in the present. You can't then take that and say, well, it must have happened, therefore, that way in the past. What you need in the past is an eyewitness and a line of evidence. Now, we have an eyewitness, Jesus Christ, right, who told us what he did. But we also have evidence to back that up. And we even displayed some of it earlier in the form of this shrimp. 
right? Now, this is a shrimp which is supposed to be 159 million years old. Now, I don't believe it is that old, but you have to understand, even if you want to argue that this is 159 million years old, all you've proven is that in 159 million years, shrimp have turned into shrimp. They haven't mm -hmm. evolved at all. What they have done is do exactly what DNA was designed to do, which is make creatures reproduce after their own kind and not change. Oh, there will be varying traits. There will be varying shapes and sizes and colors. And that's all about the beauty uh, of adaptability that is inherently programmed within the DNA. But the reality is it's still a shrimp. It hasn't changed mm -hmm. to a new creature. So even if you want to argue that new mutations can produce new information, you still have absolutely no evidence that that's what creatures did. Because as Glenn pointed out, as Michael Denton had to admit, there's no evidence that creatures change in the past. And it gets worse because you remember these starfish that Glenn held up earlier? These are from the Ordovician. These are supposed to be 450 million years old. And you knew that they were starfish because they looked like starfish because they haven't actually changed. So you see, all this discussion about mutations is fantastic, and all the research that's been done has been great, but even if we are one day able to find mutations that do produce new information, and I don't believe that we ever will, but even if you are able to produce that, you still have the major problem of where did that information come from in the first place, and what about the fact that the fossil record proves that creatures don't change and haven't changed in the past, all they've done is exactly what God told them to do 10 times in Genesis chapter one, which is reproduce after their own kind. So I think it's about time we wrap that up there. Uh, go back to you, Sam, questions. But does uh, any of the other team have any comments to round things up? No. Very good. All good? No, yeah. no, we're all good. Let's go into some questions uh who little or me has asked this question uh you said uh, you probably um answered this anyway but it's worth touching on again uh, do you guys and girls agree that natural selection actually attributes intelligent design to the process i mean if it were truly random everything should have died before we even got here if it was truly random we should have never got here in the first place <laughs> <That's> right <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <clears throat> um, it can never be truly random in its greatest sense because the universe is governed by laws, right? Laws of physics, uh, and the world that we live in is governed by laws of physics. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is you then have to explain in a truly random universe, where did these laws come from? Because God mm -hmm. is a God of law and order. So even natural selection is still has to adhere to the laws of physics, things like gravity, right? You can't jump off a cliff and survive by floating away. It's just not going to happen, right? You're going to fall down and die. So uh, even things like natural selection is never truly random mm. because it's governed by laws that God put in place at the beginning. Yeah, I like an example John gave to me because I don't know that you would say that an intelligent designer has necessarily driven things like mutations and and no. gene losses and so on. But um, John's given an example before. If you've you've got like a flying boat that can take off as well uh, on the ground, so um, if it loses the wheels, well, technically it can still fly and still float. Now, if you have the wings ripped off, well, it can still float and it can still function as something that floats. But um, if it, you put a big hole in the side, then it sinks and it's gone. All right, there's there's a there's a limit as to what you can lose um, for. It, yeah, this is a a non-living example, but um, for it to be anything, right? So it, it goes 
down, 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 and then that's it. So um, I don't think it's an intelligent designer necessarily involved in any, any of those steps. All right. Thank you very much for that. Great uh, stuff. Any um, more questions, Sam? Uh, yes, we've got some questions coming from Twitch, actually. Um, Diabetic Wake Up uh, has uh, sent in this question. How do you usually argue the Earth is 50 years old thing? Well, I'm not going to ask you your age live on, on, on air, Glenn, but I, I'm assuming you're older than 50. <laughs> I'm older than 50. Well, there we are, so <laughs> 50 I don't think we've ever argued that. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's at least 67 years old i can assure <laughs> you that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> now um if you i think if you go uh, to the age of the earth <clears throat> that we actually argue for um you will find that uh, if you start with the scriptures and you work backwards you'll find that the earth is certainly according to the scriptures under 10,000 years old with a more accurate between six to seven thousand years yeah. old and the whole point that we make is that there are many 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 ideas hypotheses theories mm. and opinions that <laughs> contradict that but the facts never actually do so i'd recommend going and having a look at some of our other other programs on creation conversations including things about the age of the earth uh, radiometric dating carbon 14 dating uh, soft tissue and dinosaur bones we've done all these topics before on uh, creation conversations. And you brought up in the talk last night about historians in the past mm -hmm. wrote about the earth being about 6,000 years old. Mm -hmm. um, I had a graduate student from China who knows nothing about the Bible, absolutely never read the Bible. And I asked him <laughs> how old the earth is because I wanted to talk to him about the young earth creation beliefs. And he said the earth was 6,000 years old. And I was like, that blew my mind. I said, why? He says, we Chinese keep very detailed records and we only have 6,000 years of history. So the earth must be 6,000 years old. And it's like, well, that that's consistent Good with the Bible. Yeah, yeah. All right. Any final questions before we finish, Sam? Uh, got one. Um, I'm at a loss with this question because I can't wrap my head around it. Hopefully you can shed some light on this. Uh, do you think the Kalmar Union was a result of evolution or creative design? Uh, that that's it, it's not relevant Sam, to our discussion. The Union, as far as I'm aware, was some treaty between Scandinavia and Sweden and Denmark. I, I, you'd have to, unless I'm missing that, but I don't think that's relevant. Anyway, all right, and that's it. That's all our questions that have come in. Thank you very, very much. Good. Right on time. And right on time. So thank you very much, everybody. That was great. Do join us next week. We'll be back with another topic. In fact, next week, we've got Simon Terry joining us, uh, who is an expert in <clears throat> slugs and mollusks and snails and all that kind of stuff. And he's a, a great friend of the ministry. And Sam's got a big announcement coming next week. He uh, has indeed, yes. Go uh, and give Sam, us a little... briefly give us a little update on what's All right. For. Okay. Well, um, is the regular viewers among you will know... Um, we announced well we announced plans for something a little while ago um and we have been working busy in the background we've been planning things and sorting things out and i've been hard at work this week uh multiple back-to-back -back meetings and things like that but i'm happy to say that we are practically there um so happy to say uh that we have uh, a new streaming platform coming very very soon um within the next week or so um uh, it's, it's called creation research live it's, it's 
basically a, a refurb of the existing one. Um, much better experience for you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, so just a few graphics for you. Uh, it's going to be our new streaming platform for all things creation research coming soon. So please do keep up to date with our newsletters and creation conversations, uh, creation research. If you haven't subscribed, please do subscribe. It's free. It helps us out. Ring the notification bell. Uh, also as well, if you haven't signed up to our newsletters, please do. They are free. We don't bombard you with spam, do we, guys? Definitely no. not. No, exactly. It's all very uh, nicely packaged. It's very um, sporadically uh, spaced out, so we're not spamming you every five minutes with something. Uh, it's completely free to do, so go to linkin.bio forward slash creation research, or you can scan that QR code with your smartphone's camera, and it'll take you to our page where you can find all of our relevant links to everything. Um, but yeah, uh, please do keep your eyes peeled uh, for uh, next week, where we'll have a proper um, deep sort of dive into the new streaming platform and, and that's... remember um uh, if you have uh, are in the sort of uh, east usa area tennessee kentucky alabama around there and you have uh, availability on the 25th of february which is um week after next mm -hmm. uh then do get in touch because that's our only last uh, date to fill in our full itinerary and everything else is pretty full on. So uh, do get in touch if you're in the area and would like a visit from Glenn and myself to come and speak. All right, folks, thank you all very much. God bless, and we will see you soon.